This is The Cole Memo. I'm your host, Cole Preston. Every episode is released in audio, video, and transcript format. To find the audio, video, or transcript version of any episode, please refer to the description of the episode that you're listening to now. Within that description, you can find a link that will take you to our website, which will display the transcript for this episode and the platforms where you can find this episode in audio or video formats. If you're unable to locate the episode description on whichever platform you're listening from, Simply note, the, simply note the episode number and visit thecolememo.com. From there, you can find the corresponding episode, and then you'll be able to access the audio, video, and transcripts. You might also find any links that we reference during the episode so that you might be able to do your own research. We will be referencing some links today. If you're not listening to this episode of The Cole Memo on Patreon, then you're listening to this episode later than our patrons. To become a patron, go to thecolememo.com slash Patreon. Once again, that's thecolememo.com slash Patreon. It's a great way to support support our show. One of the best ways to support our show is absolutely free. Subscribe to, follow our show, or share it with your friends. I hope that, and I know that, you'll enjoy this episode of The Cole Memo. Today is November 6th, 2023, and today I'm joined uh, by my friend and somebody that I look up to, Shalene Title. Shalene Would you uh, go ahead and introduce yourself to my audience for folks that may not be aware of you? This is uh, your first time on the Cole Memo. Yeah, I was about to say, I think this is my first time on the Cole Memo. So first of all, congratulations on the new show. Thank you for having me. Thank you. So um, I am a founder and director of the Parabola Center for Law and Policy, which is a nonprofit, nonpartisan think tank. And we are focused on making sure that big corporations don't take over and monopolize the cannabis industry and really all drug industries, because I think all drugs should be legalized. Um, I have about 20 years of experience with activism, advocacy, business law, and other areas within marijuana legalization reform. And I previously served as a cannabis regulator in the state of Massachusetts. Yeah, and uh, just a teaser uh, and proof of your longstanding advocacy. Uh, sorry, Shalene, I know we all hate pictures of ourselves as a young person, um, but there you are as a young person uh, fighting the good fight. We'll get back to that. That's a teaser for the the end of the episode. Uh, once again, wanted to plug the Parabola Center. Uh, it's parabolacenter.com. And once again, folks, that link will be in our uh, podcast description go ahead and check it out. There's a lot of good information on the website and we'll be discussing some of that information today. Shalene, you recently, uh, the Parabola Center recently shared two uh, different papers. Um, I guess before we get into that, is there anything else you wanted to mention about the Parabola Center? I said parabolacenter.com, just anything else uh, before we dive into the discussion today? Um, just that we're very narrowly focused. There's a lot of marijuana legalization organizations, and I support all of them, basically. Um, But we're the only one that is focused on, I think, this critical point of making sure that monopolization doesn't occur. So if that's something you care about, please uh, keep following us. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And to that end, which uh, which paper do you think we want to start our discussion on today? Uh, again, we've got two, the role of small business in the evolving cannabis industry and how to federally legalize cannabis without violating the Constitution or undermining equity and justice. Where do you think you want to start today? 
Um, they kind of go together. So maybe sure. I can introduce them together. So this is kind of our harvest season because we spend the whole year working on these projects and then they're finally out. Um, and I'm very excited about these two because I think they make a very critical point um, together. So the small business paper, which was published by the Ohio State University's Drug Enforcement and Policy Center, um, makes the point that small cannabis businesses exist, first of all, that they're important, and that they are worth saving. So we kind of go through, um, I would actually say, like, contrary to the common impression out there, um, the cannabis industry is dominated by small businesses currently. That is a point that we thought it was really important to make because myself included, we're all very annoyed by the large MSOs that are coming in and, you know, very rapidly increasing their market share. So we document that. But at the same time, compared to other legal industries, uh, we have a lot of small businesses. And right. so first we wanted to make that point. Then we also wanted to talk about why small businesses are good for the public. And so we go through a lot of research and in other industries and then we end with like a quick short-term solution. I would probably call it a Band-Aid solution, but there's nothing wrong with Band-Aids, right? If you if you are bleeding, you need a Band-Aid. So we kind of end with like what could pass right now, in our opinion. And then awesome. the other paper is more long-term and it's more interested in the future. And the point of it is we are going to lose the state markets if we don't intentionally protect them in the transition to federal national legalization. And this is something that people don't see because you can't be concerned about something that you haven't seen yet, right? And so we wanna make sure people see that threat and then we go through our blueprint for how to protect the state markets, make them even better and save these small businesses that make up currently the majority of the industry. Yeah. And, uh, you know, thank you for the, the high strokes on that. You know, some of the numbers that were in uh, the first paper to to back up some of what you were saying that I really, really found interesting. Uh, and you had a really good graph for it. Um, and I think the numbers are broken down. Uh, yeah, in this this paragraph preceding it. Um, but but this is a good look. Do you want to describe you mentioned this earlier, but do you want to describe what we're looking at here for for people? Yeah, um, and I want to quickly credit a couple of people, um, Bruce Barcott, who was my co-author on this paper, and Eric Casey, who ran the amazing newsletter, Burn After Reading, which has just ended. Um, they both helped out with this. So uh, what it shows is how quickly the industry is consolidating. So this rainbow of colors is the largest cannabis companies. Most people will recognize these and how their share grew between 2018 and 2022. So you can see that rate is concerning. And if they continue to grow and consolidate at that rate, we will see the problems that come with corporate concentration that we see in so many other industries. However, it also makes an optimistic point, which is that I was surprised, and I think if you ask most people um, in the industry who think about these issues, they might also be surprised by just how small their share is in total, whereas the orange rep represents small businesses. So really, this is ours to lose 
right? And so when I talk about the policies that would protect small businesses, it's important to see we can still protect them. We don't have a situation where there's a monopoly and we're trying to break it up, which is a whole different thing. We're trying to prevent a monopoly from happening in the first place. And I would argue that's much easier. Whoops, I was muted. Sorry. To your point, uh, caught myself there. Uh, to your point, I liked the 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 numbers you shared about the beer industry. So four multinational firms account for 78% of retail beer sales, while thousands of small craft-scale brewers compete for slices of the remaining 21.4%. So the, the picture you painted, as you said, is actually, I was surprised too. I was like, oh, wow. This is a look how big this donut is still. There's a lot of there's a lot left to share, right? I mean, that's my layman way of looking at it, right? <laughs> exactly. And you know, we've chose the beer industry on purpose because I think there's a perception out there that the beer industry is one that we should aspire to because we all know that craft breweries exist. So we're like, why not? You know, let's just copy and paste the beer rules and then we'll have all these great breweries. No, that is actually the opposite of this chart, right? So the vast <laughs> majority are owned by large companies. And so I think if we aspire to that, we are doing ourselves a major disservice and we're going to be destroying a lot of the small businesses. We should be aiming way, way higher. Absolutely. Absolutely. And there was a part that stood out to me that really resonated with me at the beginning of the paper that I wanted to revisit for our listeners um, I, I like how you, uh, you know, call out everybody, but you also like even call out yourself. You, you say, unfortunately, research on the issue of small business remains sparse. This deficiency begins with a lack of a universally accepted definition of small within the cannabis industry. Concerns, concerns regarding the rise of big marijuana corporations have been well documented and widely covered in both academic papers, including our own. <laughs> I like that part and popular media. However, considerably less attention has been directed to the flip side of this coin, the establishment and sustained economic well-being of small cannabis businesses within a legal, well-regulated market. I really liked that paragraph, so just had to read it. That was somewhat <laughs> inspired by our partners, too, because Parabola Center has about 100 partners. Most of them are small cannabis businesses, and so I think a lot about just pointing out, we're not trying to create something new, we're trying to support businesses that already exist and already provide you know, all of these benefits to the community and the local economy. And a lot yeah. of them are thriving. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, not, I don't, I hope I'm not shifting gears too rapidly, but, uh, or drawing a tangent where there isn't one. But one of my parts that, the parts that stood out to me in the interstate uh, paper, the um, rather the federal legalization paper, I want to make sure I'm referring to this, how to federally legalize well, cannabis. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, there was a part that stood out to me. And of course, it's my reach because it mentions the Cole memo. So, of course, I'm going to bring that up. But it's mm -hmm. also the idea, I felt like it really related to, I feel like most people off the hip, and I apologize, I'm finding it now um, in within your paper, uh, most people off the hip would say that the way that these state economies have been set up are like 
to protect small businesses and everything else. And that is a side effect. I think you've, you point out in this paper that for sure is a side effect, but that is not the primary reason for these state markets. It's the coal memo, right? <laughs> Thank you for pointing that out because yeah, I think that's something that a lot of people have missed. They might think that it's protectionism or some other reason why we have all of these state markets. But ironically, it's the federal government that has directed states to do this, all but directed them to do it, right? And made made it clear, you know, if you let states um, import and export, that they'll be at a greater risk. And so we end up with this situation, but at the same time, it's unconstitutional. So it right. puts us in this very weird position where as soon as we have federal legalization, we can't keep this unconstitutional system in place and we're going to see rapid dramatic change and it's really up to what we do now in terms of education and advocacy that decides whether that rapid change will be good or not yeah speaking of education um which i think can lead to advocacy i'm going to start i'm you're, you're turning me dangerous i'm going to start throwing around the dormant commerce clause because part of what this uh paper explains is what that is. I've heard people explain it for a while, but and I'd like to think of myself as a policy wonk, but but admittedly, there are shortcomings in my knowledge. And one of the things I felt like I really stepped out of this paper understanding is the dormant commerce clause. And I really like that about the paper that that it explains that. And do you mind breaking down just a little bit more clearly how it's weird. The Cole memo seems to be expressly advising states to do this, yet doing this is in violation of could could be arguably in violation of the dormant commerce clause. Can you break that down for folks? So very briefly, what you need to know for this context is that the dormant commerce clause is a legal doctrine that says if Congress is silent on this issue, states cannot discriminate against out-of-state businesses. So what that means is all of the bills that have been proposed so far that would deschedule marijuana, CAOA, States Reform Act, the Moore uh, bill, all of these would result in a situation where states can no longer prevent out-of-state businesses from selling in their state. And so that would have an enormous consequence. It would wipe out state markets. And the way that it would be prevented, the other side of the Dormant Commerce Clause, is that if Congress is not silent, um, then Congress can essentially do whatever it wants. And so whatever it decides with interstate commerce, as long as it's explicitly stated in the bill, we can have the kind of intentional plan that we want. Now, um, I have to credit Tamar Todd, who wrote the paper. She is uh, expert on these issues, and she teaches a course on cannabis law and policy at UC Berkeley School of Law. So she's written a detailed explanation that will be really helpful if you want to understand it. But just for the purposes of conversation, if someone brings up the Dormant Commerce Clause, all you need to know is that Congress can overcome it by writing a bill. And if they're silent, um, it will end state markets as we know it. Yeah, and I'm displaying uh, the author. Uh, it was Tamar Todd. Is that how you say their name? Tamar Todd. Mm -hmm. Thank you. And she's done a great job explaining it in this paper. And by the way, um, don't feel bad if you don't know what the Dormant Commerce class is, because most people don't, even cannabis lawyers don't. It's something you'd gloss 
gloss over very quickly in the first year, um, but it's become extremely important in this very specific situation where we have individual state markets that are essentially unconstitutional. And so that will change rapidly. Perfect. Thank you, Shalane. There was one part of the paper that stood out to me that I think is important to speak about. It's like the, I don't mean to say it's like the other side of it, but it's an interesting part of this conversation that, it, I, again, it just stood out to me. Most of this seems to be about protecting these state markets as they are. And I think part of that, it might surprise people. And maybe I took, I'm trying to find where in the paper I saw this. So give, I hope that you're, you know what I'm referring to, but if not, I'll try to find the the part, but it, it mentions a part about how some states have grown too much and that they would actually benefit from being ex being able to export. So I think that's interesting how, because I don't know that most people would even think about it that way. Like Oregon, for example, like they would benefit from exporting their uh, cannabis, some would argue maybe, um, you know, and some people might even like that little tag on there that just like you buy Georgia peaches, you might like Oregon cannabis, right? Um, yeah, yeah. So Oregon, Washington, California have all explicitly made clear, and in some cases even passed bills, that they are ready to participate in interstate commerce. And they're small producers and cultivators, of course, they want the opportunity to start exporting. And I mean, they are exporting, right? Like, of course, we shouldn't pretend like that's not happening. I could obviously sure. go get Oregon cannabis anytime I want. But what we want to... Um, focus on is if our goal of legalization or one of the goals is fairness and competition uh, for small businesses, then we have to make sure we don't have an overnight descheduling without any rules or any transition. Because what that would lead to is these companies that are waiting in the wings and lobbying for legalization, such as Amazon, Uber, Philip Morris, they would be able to use their existing resources and existing infrastructure to completely take over the industry. And so those small cultivators on the West Coast, they would never have even a chance. They wouldn't even have an opportunity to participate. And I'm saying this based on the way we've seen these companies act over the past two decades and the way that we've seen that our existing antitrust protections have not stopped them. And so that's why I say, if we want a fair, open market that allows everybody to participate, we have to be intentional about that. And specifically, Congress has to put that into a bill when federal legalization happens. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and you brought up another thing that I feel like is the backdrop of the, this particular interstate paper. Let's call it for now to shorthand. Um, descheduling. I'm like, I would, I think we both agree that descheduling is the move, but I just thought it was interesting that the paper seems to suggest that that would, that's probably what's going to happen. Descheduling and some sort of guardrails to yeah. prevent that nightmare scenario I just described. So incidentally, um, we just signed on to a letter to President Biden that was signed by more than 40 organizations, maybe 39, um, from all across the political spectrum. So there are libertarian organizations that make up the uh, 
Freedom Alliance, I think, Marijuana Freedom Alliance. And then Parabola Center is part of a group called the Marijuana Justice Coalition. And in this letter to President Biden, we ask him to deschedule, to keep his promise. But then we also make clear that we want him to support a well-thought-out plan for legalization that includes the plan for interstate commerce. And it's really important to outline that. And as as I've as I said, this is a bipartisan, um, you know, popular point to make because otherwise it's just going to be too late, you know, and we can't go back and be intentional uh, once the market has already been dominated. Yeah, yeah, and I only brought it up just because of like like you said with with what Biden has done, and I'm glad you put it the way you put it. If he descheduled, then he would uphold his promise. I think most like you and I were disappointed to see the word reschedule instead of deschedule. And uh, can you just quickly say why? Why is reschedule a shortcoming? Why is he not meeting his campaign promise? It's pretty short and blunt. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he said he was going to decriminalize marijuana and he bingo. It doesn't <laughs> it doesn't decriminalize. Rescheduling doesn't. doesn't decriminalize. Not so. only does it not decriminalize every medical use and adult use, you know, that's currently legal under state law, virtually all of it would remain illegal. But then at the same time, it would make this strange um, pathway to federally legal marijuana for the first time, but that would only be open to essentially pharmaceutical companies who could afford the FDA approval process. And that just is totally contradictory to the way that we all use and sell marijuana currently. So it it just, it, it makes no sense. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, one thing that I really liked about the paper, just kind of jumping around, is that it does break down some of the leading reform proposals uh, for to end cannabis prohibition. Um, and I'm just going to display my screen here really quick. One thing I did not know about the state's reform act was that it would eliminate federal penalties, federal criminal criminal penalties for cannabis, but only in states that legalize and regulate cannabis under state law. It just seems crazy, you know, that, that it's got that shortcoming to it. Well, it would be very difficult to um, legalize in states that want to keep it criminalized because um, states are pretty much free to use their own law enforcement to um, enforce, you know, any criminal law. So, and that's something I run into a lot with home grow. Unfortunately, we're trying to figure out a way where everybody in the country would have a right to home grow, but it's difficult for states to, you know, to take away that, that power from states. So, uh, it is a shortcoming. I wouldn't blame the SRA sponsors for that. Um, I would say between the two bills that we chose to highlight, CAOA and SRA, um, which are Democrat and Republican sponsored respectively, I think they're more similar than they are different. And I think that they're both good, thoughtful bills that are a lot more detailed than the previous bills. Um, But they both have this gigantic hole where they have not thought about interstate commerce or included any kind of plan. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I totally get what you mean by way of uh, like they sh- like the feds wouldn't be able to change the state law. It just it, the way I read it, maybe I'm misreading it, but even in the CAO way. So allow federal enforcement in states that choose to retain state prohibition. It's like, why would federal enforcement 
be like I get what you mean where like states can decide to direct their you know resources towards the enforcement of that if they so choose but the way I'm reading it and unless I'm misreading it it's like federal like that's what I don't understand about it but yeah I mean part of that yeah I mean maybe you're right it should be described as a shortcoming, but I think part of that is the goal that if they want to bring on Republican sponsors, they have to be very um, careful about respecting states' rights. And I think it leads to like generally a similar result, but um, you're right, like this should be more, it, it's definitely better to go as far as you can from the federal level in terms of protecting people's rights to to use the drugs. Sure. Um, but I do, to your point, I do like that both the Republican and Democrat uh, proposal, Democratic proposal, include the words remove cannabis from the Controlled Substances Act, de-schedule cannabis. Because, again, that's that's the move, right? Yeah, no question. That's the move. That, nothing that doesn't contain that is is valuable. Yeah. Well, um, the end goal. <laughs> right. Any any uh any notes that that we didn't hit on these papers? I do have a thought that that came up that's that's somewhat related to these papers, but it's more big picture. So I wanted to give you the space uh on on both of these papers in case there was something important uh, out of either one of them or both of them that that we haven't covered so far. Any anything? Yeah. Um. I guess I I set up the solution, but I didn't actually describe the solution. So the whole point of the paper is to call for a solution where the gradual plan to interstate commerce is to allow social equity businesses, small businesses, and uh, worker-owned businesses to engage in interstate commerce first. So what that means is um, before Amazon, Philip Morris, you know, Altria, uh, Uber, before they can get into um, the market, the interstate market, uh, we will allow these small cultivators we were talking about on the west coast um, to be able to export and then here in massachusetts for example or new york you would be able to have the state social equity businesses deliver to you or reach out to you um, and of course vice versa but i expect that it would go in that direction because that's where the supply is and by doing that we make sure that our um, businesses that most people value and want to promote are mom and pop shops, um, that they have a head start advantage. And you can see if you do the opposite, what happens in all of our states virtually, um, we've given the larger businesses head start advantage. And small businesses have had a very difficult time catching up to that. Um, but the larger businesses, they're not actually large, right? So they are not so large that they engage in the kind of behaviors that Amazon and, and Philip Morris engage in. And so by holding that part off, um, we're able to give our small businesses a leg up. We're able to encourage worker-owned businesses, which are arguably just a better model in general. And we're able to collect data on interstate commerce because for sure there are things that will happen after federal legalization that none of us can foresee. And by collecting data and watching it carefully, um, we'll be able to make adjustments over time. And so we present that as a solution and a thoughtful plan with sample language in the paper. And our goal is that people will read it 
and people will add their own tweaks to it or they will you know argue their critiques of it and put forth their own thoughtful plans of interstate commerce and that is how we'll end up with a good model for policy because right now as far as i know that conversation isn't even happening it's just interstate commerce or not interstate commerce and that's not the conversation. Of course, we're going to end up with interstate commerce. The question is, how do we end up there? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I just want to say, you know, am I accurate? I think I use this picture probably about every time we talk about monopolies. Am I accurate? This is another visual representation of what we're trying to prevent happening. Yeah, that's it. That's it. Yeah. And um, Box Brown has excellent versions of the same thing in the cannabis industry and all the different brands that belong to the biggest companies. Yeah. 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 And, um, you know, just kind of stepping away from, from these papers. Thank you, by the way, for, for mentioning, yeah, you, you even have all display draft language that people should consider. Uh, so thank you for closing out that, that conversation by mentioning that there, you do have proposals. It's not just talking about the, the problem. You do have proposals for these issues. So um, probably should have led with that, but <laughs> now people know that's where it is. So check it nah, out. I mean, I think if people know who you are, they know that, that you, you come with solutions, you describe an issue, you come with solutions. And speaking of that, uh, you know, in the past, so we've talked and I always reference a different paper that you've written that I'm going to just go ahead and plug as I always do. Bigger is not better. Um, preventing monopolies in the national cannabis market. This is also, published by the Ohio State University. And um, we've talked about this a number of times, but I am curious just because it's mentioned, you know, in this paper vaguely, um, and maybe it's just me connecting dots because of I'm shell-shocked in Illinois. Um, but uh, it seems like one of the main concerns with Illinois is that that we do limit the number of licenses to prevent like price compression and the the justification our governor uses is that uh he's limited licenses to create a more equitable equitable market and ensure those people are profitable look i think we can agree as you point out in those papers that the the um the criteria in which we've set up these state programs does lead to a more diverse set of licensees. But my question with you, and I, I'm, I didn't necessarily plan to ask you this today, but it just came up as I was rereading these papers. How do you think we, like, what, like, I feel like an argument for license limitations on licenses is constantly, well, how can we make any money if everybody can get a license? And it's like, I don't feel like that's a, a a justification for keeping people out. And I think you'd agree, but I'm just curious, how would you respond to that? Because I'm getting it all the time here in Illinois. I mean, <laughs> it's I, it's hard for me to like respect that question because I don't really care if you're making money or not or how <laughs> right. much you're making, right? Like if you have a good product and consumers like it, that's how you're going to make money, not because you know, the government is giving you some special license and not giving it to other people. Like that's just, it's ridiculous to expect that kind of protection. Yeah. And I, I say the same thing in Massachusetts and uh, there is a push here by small businesses and social equity businesses who feel that, yeah, there's too many licenses being granted and it's not fair to them. And so, you know, I, I don't want to dismiss it, but also 
you will never survive federal legalization, you know, if you expect that other licenses can't be given out. Now, at the same time, small businesses should have access to, say, SBA protections. Um, and of course, I'm advocating strongly for a head start for small businesses. So there are um, benefits that they should have, and we should have a level playing field. But I don't think excluding people from have, from applying for licenses period is is fair to anybody. Yeah. And for folks that don't know, one of the policy proposals that that uh, I constantly point to out of your paper that I was kind of loosely referencing is do not cap the number of business licenses. Do not cap the number of business licenses available in total, but limit how much of a market any one person or entity may control. Illinois also has that part in our law, and I like that part. And actually, I recently spoke to Shaleen, uh, somebody, Shaleen, who confident I was explaining to them that I, that I like that part out of our law, and they confidently told me, well, Cole, that's going away. The, the big mm-hmm. operators in Illinois are going to get more licenses. And I was like, well, I just kn- I know that you just set me, you just triggered Shaleen and I. <laughs> um, <laughs> That's accurate. Because it's bigger, right? Isn't it 10 licenses in Illinois? Yeah. So we have uh, a maximum, you can have a maximum of 10 retail stores and three cultivation licenses, oh, which yeah, I think funny. is... <laughs> yeah, I think that's good. And especially when you consider yeah. you look at some of the big operators, the three that they have are huge. You're talking 600,000 square feet in total across three mm-hmm. licenses, right? Um, so Yeah, that's about triple as our limits in Massachusetts. So, wow, that's that's plenty. That's a shame if there's a And I don't think I've ever seen them be lifted in a state before either. So that's that's a unique situation and troubling one. Yeah, yeah, no, I I definitely, the reason I'm bringing it up now is because of the confidence in which this person said it on my show. Folks, if you saw it, you know what I'm talking about. I don't mean to like point fingers or anything, but um, yeah, the confidence in which it was said, but most importantly, the impact it would have on our market. Again, those are license limitations that I support limiting a number, you know, limiting how much of a market any one person or entity may control. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, one more thing I would point out about that monopoly paper of mine, um, which I think is the most popular paper I've ever written, is um, it is actually a rational question to say, why shouldn't we just allow a few companies to control the market? Doesn't that mean that things might be easier to regulate or as a consumer, would I have lower prices? Um, I think that's a fair question, but the answer is just um, no, that's not how it has turned out. And so that's something we explain in the paper, um, why monopolies are bad, essentially, and especially in the context of drugs. And so if people are interested, or if you know if they have that question, which I've been treating as an assumption so far, um, that might be a good paper. And honestly, I could go on for so much longer because we have Citizens United, we have super PACs, we have no class action lawsuits, um, we have no effective antitrust protections. Like in the last 20 years, I think it's become even more clear why we can't allow unchecked corporate control. Um, but I just want to acknowledge that that is a question that people might have. Before I get into other things, Shaleen, what other projects do you have uh, coming up at the Parabola Center? So we have an entirely new for us project coming up. So, so far we focused on written materials, papers, cheat sheets, op-eds. 
We are shifting to a video series. So it's a series of interviews that we held with people from all around the world, from um, indigenous cannabis farmers in Africa to economic experts in London, um, global experts on cannabis. And we asked them questions about cannabis legalization, how it should be structured, and who it should benefit. And then we paired that with a survey research project of um, ordinary people across the U.S. And we asked them things like, whom do you trust when it comes to cannabis and legalization? And who do you think it should benefit? To my knowledge, these questions have not been asked. So for us, it was really original and interesting work. So we'll be releasing that. And I hope it demonstrates to people um, that these are important questions and we should not be dismissing them or ceding control to corporations. We should be handling them together as a society. Can people stay tuned for that on the parabolacenter.com? Yes. And also we're Parabola Center on Instagram, LinkedIn, and Twitter. And we're also starting a TikTok account to release these videos. So I hope people watch them and find them helpful. Very, very cool. Very cool. Well, um, again, I just wanted to close out with some random conversation and touch a little bit on Hash Wednesday, which I think is important to, to, to speak about. Um, but before we get to that, I had one question that I thought was really um, good. I recently had Jordan Davidson on my podcast and um, for folks that don't know about Jordan Davidson, he works for smart approaches to marijuana. They argue that, uh, you know, cannabis legalization is just propping up another industry that's addiction for profit. And I asked him because I recently spoke to different attorneys, some that even gave speeches at you know, some of it was interesting. It was at a training center for one of these big cannabis companies. And I asked an attorney, mind you, we're speaking in a one of these big cannabis, like a venue for one of these big cannabis companies. I said, do you think that the complete decriminalization of cannabis, like why do you think that companies are not more supportive of that vocally uh, by way of, you know, supporting home grow or ending possession limits or you know, I, I listed off a few different factors and this attorney who's, who's pretty well known in Illinois surprisingly said, I, I wasn't surprised by the answer, but I was surprised that he said it in the venue we were in. Again, mind you, we're in one of these big, this big cannabis company hosted it. And he said, these cannabis companies see that as being against their profit motive. If they can't, you know, if they limit you to the amount that you have to buy, then you have to come back for more. If they don't allow you to grow it, of course, you have to come come to them for it, you know, all these different things. And so I felt like an interesting hole in, because I asked Jordan, it seems like you and cannabis companies agree that we should just have like just slight decriminalization and anything above that still is met with criminal penalties. Like, it seems like you guys are actually on the same page about that. And I wondered why, if they're claiming it's a you know, addiction for profit, but they say that's against their profit motive. So isn't that a hole in the whole you know, argument if if the complete decriminalization doesn't benefit them is is it legalization for profit? I'm just curious. I know I kind of just went all over the place, and I was even using my hand to to signify that. Do you think that <laughs> that I'm coming from like a legitimate place here, like, or am I just high? <laughs> that is so fascinating. That's actually why I love your show, by the way, because you don't have an agenda other than examining these questions truthfully, and you draw connections that I think most people don't draw. So um, 
That's so fascinating. I, I I do agree. And actually it it brings to mind like a big concern that I have, which is the idea of um a crackdown on the illicit market. And we have we uh, at Parabola Center, we won't partner with organizations that don't share our values. And one of them is people who call for a criminal crackdown on the illicit market. I mean arrests, not just shutting down the illicit stores. And it's because I think that, yeah, this is something that prohibitionists and companies have in common, which is when they don't support decriminalization as a concept, they want to be the only ones that can sell it and everyone else should be criminally penalized. And when you see something like rescheduling coming down the pipeline, that's when it gets really scary because that's when we might see people like Jordan and his peers and then... Pfizer and their peers saying, hey, here's this one product that we constructed that's legal and every other user and every other seller needs to be arrested. Um, that's arguably worse than what we have now. Yeah. Yeah. Well said. I just, again, it just, I think it's funny that when you look at states that more closely mirror what I think is actual legalization i say that in air quotes let's let's say michigan for example and the reason i say that is because it's the the laws are pretty liberal and the prices are pretty compassionate as a result of the laws being liberal and and it's funny because people in illinois will point to michigan as being a failure they're like look at the price compression over there look how hard it is to be a operator i'm just like you know as a consumer i don't really you just it's fallen on deaf ears almost you know like i i don't wish hardship on anybody I wish the best for everybody, you know what I mean? But at the end of the day, at least you know what you're signing up for and you have the ability to participate versus systems like ours where you are literally limited in the criminal enforcement. The The enforcement mechanism is the criminal law, you know? So. Absolutely. Yeah. For us, it was Oregon was the boogeyman. When we were building our market, um, people kept repeating, we don't want this to look like Oregon. The prices are so low. There's an oversupply. You know, there's a risk of diversion. I was like, well, consumers seem pretty happy in Oregon and I don't think it's a, a big problem. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Well said. Well, um, Shalene, let's close out with some uh, Hash Wednesday. Sound good? Let's. Yeah. When did you uh when did you come to UIUC and and how and why? Like what were you coming to study? So I was there from 2000 to 2008. I got my undergrad degree in accounting, my grad degree in accounting, and then my law degree. And uh, actually, it was the only school I got into um, because I wrote an essay, my college essay. This is kind of a side note, but I enjoy telling people this. So I wrote my side note, um, excuse me, I wrote my essay on Columbine shootings because they had just happened when I was applying for college. And I wrote that uh, the way we were responding to them was a terrible over uh, overreaction and that we weren't addressing the root causes and that we were just going to see more shootings. And I was completely right. Um, but my parents, guidance counselor, everybody told me, you cannot write this. You're never going to get into college. And that I, I got rejected from every school except U of I. So um, that was how I ended up there and I got involved in SSDP as a sophomore. My roommate Danielle Schumacher headed up the um, SSDP normal chapter and I was just like going along the ride for fun. How did you end up with Danielle as a roommate? It's a cool roommate. Is it just by chance? That's why I'm asking. We went to boarding school together. Oh, okay. Illinois cool. Math and Science Academy. Yeah. So we had already been roommates. 
Gotcha. Gotcha. I was like, man, you, you ended up with a fucking cool roommate. Um, <laughs> I agree. When and how did you first hear about hash Wednesday and don't please don't say what hash Wednesday is. I'm just, yeah, I'll <laughs> ask you that, but I'm just curious. When did you hear about it and how did you hear about it first? Um, I don't fully remember. remember, but it must've been from Danielle. And I heard about it as something really cool that had been happening and that we needed to revive. And if you could, what is Hash Wednesday? Um, maybe everybody's going to give you a different definition, but in my day, so like 2003 or so, it was an act of civil disobedience. It was a way to raise awareness to the criminalization of marijuana and the fact that we could change it. And it was just an opportunity to have fun. Um, I asked my husband what he remembers about those days. And all he remembered was that he smoked a joint on the quad and that it was so cool. I think that's what it is for a lot of people. Yeah. Yeah. A liberating moment. Um, I feel like that's also what I would recall. And the only thing I would recall if uh, if I were him. So any, anyways, uh, showing some pictures again, I, I don't know. Uh, of course, this one, you're in the background. I don't know how many others you will be. Um, oh, please bring back good memories. Yeah. It looks like there were guitar and uh, the guy dressed up as a joint. Um, while I'm flipping through these, do you mind sharing some stories? Maybe anything you might remember, anything that stands out? I do remember that we built like a 40 foot paper mache joint. I shouldn't say we, I was lazy, but the other people built it. I remember we had a celebrity pothead lookalike contest. I remember that um, I was really impressed that uh, the cops were completely hands off, you know, and I had not experienced something like that before. It was around the same time as the Iraq war protests. So um, it was kind of interesting to be involved in both of those. I would say this was a lot more fun. And I would say, you know, we got lifelong uh, supporters of the movement, like people now, you know, 20 years later, they're like, you know, scientists or you know, whatever they're doing, and they still support Parabola Center. And those seeds were planted on Hash Wednesday. And that's something that you can't overstate, you know, when something is fun with your friends, and you're enjoying yourself, that's how you get people to the movement. It's not with like, you know, bullet point arguments, or, you know, winning some kind of debate. It's through having fun and making people feel connected. Yeah. Yeah, well said. Yeah, I'm just flipping through some of these pictures. Folks, for show, uh, we'll be releasing this entire photo album uh, in the future here. Uh, this is a cool thing that, out of context, I had no idea what was going on. Um, there was a joint rolling contest, but it was with, like, uh, spices, right? Yeah, correction. It was an oregano cigarette rolling contest. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Thank you. That's what it was. Yeah. But but again, without context, when I look at these images, I see a green leafy substance and papers and people. So it was effective is my point. Definitely. It was it was a tongue in cheek uh, oregano cigarette rolling contest. And some people were really good. Yeah, I was I, taught how to roll a joint by Ed Rosenthal personally, um, and I still I can't do it to save my life. But I'm really proud that that's how I learned. I was going to say that's a freaking awesome story. But yeah, Danielle mentioned that that some people like really, really took off with this joint rolling contest. It was like no contest. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, some people were really good. Some people were struggling. 
Yeah. Um, but yeah, any other uh, notable moments? I thought that it was cool to to hear you say that it just felt liberating. When I look at these photos, especially somebody that spends a lot of their time in Champagne, it just gives me this this feeling that I can't exactly vocalize. And maybe that's the same for you. Maybe you won't be able to vocalize it. But if you could, tr if you can, um, what do you remember feeling about those days? I remember feeling a profound connection to everyone who had already been in that fight because I knew that Hash Wednesday had been going on since the 70s. And, you know, when you're young, like to me, the 70s might as well have been Gandhi and Martin Luther King, right? It's like yeah. history, it, Hash Wednesday is history and they were on the same quad doing the same thing. And I had no idea that legalization was right around the corner. You know, I thought maybe sometime in my lifetime, I'll get to see it. Or maybe my kids will be on this quad doing the same thing, you know, but I think that sense of connection and belonging is undoubtedly what brings about change. Yeah. And speaking of bringing about change, you know, just to close uh, on this, I thought one of the things that was really cool about this, and I don't know if you helped with this, but these displays that would show the impact of the war on drugs. Yeah, that was something that I don't think most college students were aware of, you know, and, and I'll just use myself as an example. When I started out, I thought like, this is bullshit. Me and my friends, you know, we should be able to, you know, not be risk. Uh, when we shouldn't have to risk arrest but then over time I came to understand like how massively privileged we were and how awful the racial disparity in Illinois was in particular and so yeah no I did not put this together but I think the people who did um, they were really focused on showing individual stories rightfully so and I think they changed a lot of minds yeah I just thought it was cool because it was like before the internet um, you know so it, it took a lot of effort to to do that here you are with your fake joint um with danielle um oh, it man. just took so much say effort enough i cannot say enough about before the internet like the way that protests felt it was completely different and it was just but then you know at the same time it was drug policy i don't know if people know this it was cannabis policy people who were the first to use the internet as a movement and to create political change. And that is also really special. Yeah, actually part of this Hash Wednesday series, I found uh, this person named Joshua Salone was using email in the 90s before email was really even like, he was literally using it by virtue of the fact that he was at the University of Illinois and he was like very, very privileged in that access, yeah. Oh, man. Kudos to you for documenting this, because we can't let that stories like that get lost to history. That's amazing. Yeah. Oh, I remember yeah. that. I remember that. I totally thought he was going to fall out of the tree. <laughs> That's a <laughs> so, hand-painted sign on hemp. I was about to ask you. Yeah, that looked hand-painted. So super cool. Mm -hmm. Super cool. Well, um, any other thoughts to just close this thread on Hash Wednesday? I, I you know... I'm so thankful that that folks like you did, even if you didn't really fully recognize what you were doing at the time, that you did put yourself out there like that. Like, yeah, it's huge. Thanks for documenting this and for bringing back all the, the Hash Wednesday memories throughout the year. That's really special. Yeah. Yeah. And one thought that I wrote down uh, just that I wanted to to end on with regard to this is I do think that that you kept a flame alive from those folks that that were you know fighting for it and i think that you almost uh 
it's like you kept the flame alive long enough for a new generation to kind of dilute the old guards mentality. Do you follow? What do you mean by that? Say more. Like, you know, the as you said, the 70s, the 80s, and 90s, those seems seem like lifetimes ago. I was born in I'm not gonna say it, but I like to say now I was born in the 1900s because the 2000s <laughs> are just so fucking crazy now, you know. So it does. It really feels yeah. like a lifetime ago. And I guess what I'm saying is, I feel like these movements started in the 60s, 70s, 80s, and we've kept the flame alive. You've kept the flame alive, and I just wanted to thank you for that. Like I feel like that has diluted the old guards mentality and to sorry i feel like i still haven't answered your question to to answer that it's just like attitudes have changed people that old mentality of drugs are bad like that's not the operating attitude anymore for the most part so and that's yeah. the way it should be well you're keeping the flame alive too and you're actually like transforming it <laughs> or you're you know you're evolving it into what it needs to get into um question is hash wednesday still going on no not yet. Mm. Mm. Not yet. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Got it. I want to I want to bring it back. That'd be cool, you know. That'd be really cool. But no, uh actually WCIA made a report a few years ago and I can send it to you after we're done here that showed uh hash Wednesday in the 70s, but the last thing that they mentioned is that uh, you'd be hard pressed to see Hash Wednesday go on today because of the fact that you know University of Illinois smoke free campus, but also it just hasn't happened since I think about your time, Shalene. I think just about shortly after you left is when it stopped. I, I can't, I don't want to say that exactly, but that yeah. I, I'm having trouble finding any evidence of it happening after you guys had left. So, I believe that that logic is very funny. It's a smoke free campus, and right. so we were allowed to do what we were doing in the seventies. Right, isn't that funny? Well, if you um if you bring it back, let me know. I will be there. Probably Danielle, probably Rob, probably all my friends will come back for it. That would be so cool. That would be so cool. Yeah, we'll have to make that happen. So Shaleen, um, it's been a pleasure to speak to you as always. Uh folks, once again, we'll have the papers and uh website linked in the episode description. Uh, any parting thoughts, Shaleen, or you think we covered it today? Um, this is just a very minor thing, but people often ask me um, how they can help Parabola Center if they aren't able to volunteer and if they aren't able to offer donations. So one thing that's really helpful is if you just download the papers, especially the ones that are on external uh, research platforms, like the small business one, because then it helps me because then I have to go and make a case for the next paper and I want to make it free and open to the public. Then I can say, hey, this is something that people really care about. Like, look how many people read it. Um, and it's just helpful. So if you download the small business paper and have your friends download it, I really appreciate it. Yeah. So folks, use those links to not only read the papers, but download them to help support uh, Yeah, what I think is actually going to result in substantive reform in uh, drug policy. So thank you all. I will see you on the next episode of The Cole Memo. Take care.